You're listening to Q Marriage Mentors with Jeff Lutz, a podcast featuring conversations with remarkable lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender couples. What makes great relationships work? Jeff will ask the questions. You'll hear the answers. Together, we'll learn. Today, I'm honored to have a conversation with some of my sheroes, two women who have made a remarkable difference, not only in their local community, but in their state and throughout the entire country. Suzanne Bryant is an adoption attorney who has helped hundreds of LGBT couples, including me and my husband, to start a family. Her wife, Sarah Goodfriend, is a retired economist and a gifted political activist. They've been together 34 years and have raised two incredible daughters. I started our conversation like I almost always do by asking how they met. We met in North Carolina where I was in law school and Sarah was getting her PhD through a mutual friend. And at that time, I had followed somebody there and had the rug pulled out from under me and been dumped. But I still was with this person every once in a while, this woman. And so Sarah thought we might still be together. And um, Sarah had a, a girlfriend that she was kind of on the way to breaking up with, but I thought they were still together. So when we first met, we thought we were meeting someone who was still involved <laughs> with another person. Okay. Sarah, you want to add to that? I think that was really kind of fortunate in a way because... Um, we just really bonded. Um, I remember coming home, um, actually, to my, at the time, girlfriend who had been visiting her brother and, and saying, I just met somebody who feels like a soulmate, you know. And we really, we really just really hit it off from kind of a values point of view and just had really great conversations starting mm-hmm. out. But really, I think both thinking... Me believing that Suzanne might still be involved with her ex, and um, you believing that Sudi and I were still um, involved. And so the other thing I remember is we sat at a dinner party, and we talked after everybody else went into the living room, and we talked about what really mattered to us, and we had this really deep conversation about how we felt very lucky in our lives, and we wanted to make the world a better place. And so we really had this common value of doing something important with our lives that we discussed with each other. Then we went into everybody else, sat on the couch, and I remember Sarah leaning over me, kind of hugging my knee and talking to someone on the floor. And all of a sudden it hit me that this woman I didn't even know was just hugging onto my knee. (laughs) And I hadn't even noticed it. It felt so comfortable. Uh. And so it was just like things just were magic. It was very nice. Yeah, I also think you were sort of surprised because, um, I mean, an economist sounds pretty dry, but I think as I was excited about what I was learning and what I was doing, I think you sort of came to understand that that felt like a calling. Right, that the economy can really affect people's lives, you know, and that she was there to make the world a better place. Yeah, you used to make jokes about, like, fall in love with an economist. I can't believe I fell in love with an economist. (laughs) So how did you get from that night to the point in which you started dating and made a commitment to each other? Well, I kind of showed, Suzanne had a party, and um, Sudi, my ex-girlfriend, and I at that point had really done a pretty good job of discussing that I was leaving 
Um, I was getting my graduate degree. I was leaving, and she was a North Carolinian. She was going to stay, and we were really friends. And I was like, well, you know, we'd hit that point where we were sort of free to see other people, and I hadn't really put it together that Suzanne. I guess I had on, on a more of a subconscious level because Suzanne had had a party, and I had spent you know like two hours trying to find. It was called glitter and be gay. And I, was, I spent like two or three hours trying to look like I hadn't spent two or three hours trying to look cool for her party, you know, <laughs> shopping and all that kind of stuff. And I just basically came to the party and it was, it's a little bit like those, um, it's really sentimental, but it's it's a little bit like one of those things that you see where Tweety Bird gets hit by the hammer and there's like stars coming yeah. out of Tweety Bird's eyes. Yeah. Kind of. It was enough well, like that. I'm, I'm going to tell the line that will embarrass you. I said to Sarah, gee, I love that dinner party. That was really wonderful. Maybe we can have lunch or dinner. And she said, yes, or make love. And that's when the Tweety Bird hit me. It was like, whoa, excuse me. I need to go take care of my guests. And I think Sarah stayed that night and never really went home. Yeah, I stayed downstairs that night. Cause Sandy you stayed downstairs with Sudi that night, and I stayed upstairs with Sandy because we were still with our exes as friends. And the next morning, her uh, ex came in with a cup of coffee and gave it to us and left. And Sandy left and... That was it. No, I didn't really know. Yeah, I just decided that since I had these feelings that I I showed up the next morning. I mean, we basically stayed downstairs, and Sudie took, took whatever car we came in home. And I said, well, I think I need to tell Sandy that I have kind of designs on Suzanne. And Sandy, of course, I thought I might get hit or something. I didn't know. And Sandy just looked at me and smiled, of course, because she knew that she and Suzanne were not really a couple anymore. They were just, you know... They were just good buddies. Kind of let her off the hook because she'd fallen in love with one of her students and broken my heart. So now she was off the hook and everything was okay. So, it, you know, it may sound to your audience like this is kind of a rebound kind of thing, but it just it just oh, didn't no. feel that way. I mean, I know sometimes couples, you know, they're like they run into another relationship to get out of one they were in. But I think this was really not not like that, although hmm. it might look superficially like that. Really, things had kind of ended with your things previous... Things had really ended. They had the really previous, ended, yeah. Yeah, they'd really totally ended. And I didn't really feel a need to go out and date, but I just felt like this is a really interesting person who I'm, as I'd said before to Sudi, you know, a couple of weeks prior, that I thought was just going to be a really, a really nice person. And then, of course, you know, it wasn't... I didn't just say I also thought she was cute and hot and all the other stuff. That you, it's important for a relationship. Sarah, are you always that bold, or was no. that just a, a no? Moment? I'm totally meek and mild mannered, and it. And the thing is, is that this kind of stuff works with Suzanne. Like she had, she spent. Was it the next summer that you went to San Francisco and I showed up with mm-hmm. the roses? I could always do really corny things, and it would work. Romantic, romantic, yeah, corny, sweet romantic, corny. Yeah, she likes that. So it's like. I think it kind of must have brought it out in yeah. me because she likes the corny part. So that's good. I'll but I think what was really important and what's held us together is those real values of, you know, our ethics are important to us and white lies are not okay. And, you know, that if we have something that has fallen into our laps, can we share it? And that how can we make the world a better place? 
in, you know, whatever comes our way. And so we've always kind of shared that, that basic value. Yeah. And we, you know, we've dealt with issues like we're, we both were very career focused. I mean, we're older now, but you know, I would go through periods of kind of being jealous of your career. I don't know if you felt like you were of mine, but we would have to work stuff like that out because we would be competitive. And, you know, I just feel like even though that kind of stuff happened, I mean, it's to look back on it being that sort of thing doesn't matter now, but I'm much older, you know, when you're young and building a career, stuff like that can kind of get under your skin. Tell me a little bit more about that. When jealousy hit about your careers, how did you work through it? Um, I think we just talked, first of all, we talked about it and, and try to get in touch and admit what our feelings were and then try to take a look and say, well, what is this really about? You know, why am I feeling inadequate or why am I making a comparison? There was an issue we needed to work on. We'd go to counseling, like the decision to have children, which we decided to do. I was an only child. We went to counseling, you know, and um, because I was really intimidated at the idea, never thought I'd have kids and was kind of intimidated at the idea of raising kids together. And, and raising kids, when we, when we were looking at it, you know, this was in the 1980s. And lesbians having kids was happening, you know, in San Francisco, in New York, and D.C., but it wasn't happening a lot. And then we were moving to Texas where it wasn't happening a lot. And so we went to therapy, and I said, you know, I've always thought I'd have kids. I'm going to make 45 my my deadline because I don't want to look back and have a big life regret that I never examined. And so we went into therapy uh, and we actually, we've done therapy where the two of us go with one therapist, but this time she had her therapist and I had my therapist and we went in the four of us together and it was really nice because I felt like I had somebody in my court and she had somebody in her court sure. and we could talk to each other, but they could also help clarify what we were trying to say. And and Sarah has described that as how do you say no to somebody who goes, I want a baby, <laughs> you know, so I kind of dragged her into the first child yeah, and then it's the best thing you've ever dragged me into. And being an only child, I was also at the time after our first child really mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that we had a second child in the family because I thought it would be good for them. They're, um, you know, it's an interracial adoption and the girls have each other. And I just think that's worked out great. I mean, I can't imagine not having both of our daughters today. You know, listening to you talk, it reminds me of Dr. Judith Stacy, who is a retired sociologist from NYU. And she became well-known uh, in 2001 because she was the person who reviewed all the research that had been done up until that point about same-sex couples adopting. And her research was cherry-picked by the religious right and used against us. And she had to do affidavits and appear in court to clarify what she really found. And one of the things that she said was she believed that same-sex couples, especially women at that time, because gay men hadn't really started having kids yet, adopting and having children the way they do now. But she argued that uh, lesbian couples might be stronger than heterosexual couples for a number of reasons, but one of them was what sociologists call selection effects, which is we sit down and we talk about it and we go to therapy and it's long and it's drawn out, but we reach a conclusion and we don't have any whoops, we're pregnant. Mm 
mm-hmm. moment. So it sounds like you all really did the work. We did to decide if you were on the same page. Yeah, our, our families are, are those. The kids who are in gay families are really wanted kids. There's never the oops, I had a kid. Yeah, well, you, you learn. Know. You see so much of that in your practice as an adoption attorney. Yeah. You see it all the time. My adoptions are for all gay families, trying to make sure that gay families have two legal parents that are, are on the same playing field so that it just creates a stability and balance. You know, and it, it's good when the couple stays together, and it's also really good if there are issues that come up and the couple splits up or grandparents try to move in after a, a birth mother's death or anything like that, just creating that stability. So, you know, I see all the time uh, how much gay women and men want to be parents. And I see how hard it is, especially for the men, because they can't, you know, go get sperm from a sperm bank and give birth. But, boy, I'll tell you, you never see such loved kids. Mm. Mm. Thank you for saying that. I think people need to hear that. Yeah, I think it's true, too. And you were going to ask us about coming out, but boy, once you're a parent, you're coming out all the time. Yeah. Every day. So tell me know. more about the process of getting your children and what it's been like to parent them. They're both young adults now. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, there aren't really aren't words to, to describe how wonderful it's been. It's just been, it's just, it's been the most precious part of my life. I wouldn't trade a day, you know, of being with them for anything else. Um, they've taught me so much. I think they've taught us so much. And they've just been a joy. I mean, when you're ready to parent, parenting is really, you know, such a joy. Yeah. So our kids are Chinese. They were both born in China. One was adopted at 18 months, one at 22 months. And uh, as I said, we are older parents. So... Um, it's been a, a different kind of parenting for us because it's brought us into uh, interacting with the parents of their peers. So a lot of our friends are younger. Many of our friends are heterosexual. Uh, we've had to uh, just negotiate the same things, though, that every parent does. You know, how do you how do you love them and have them really believe in themselves, but not spoil them, have them take risks, but not not have them in danger. You know, all those things that parents do. And even, like we said earlier, that we agreed early on we'd go to counseling. And I guess many times, over the 34 years we've been together, we've probably gone to counseling six or seven different series of times and then we won't go for a while and then something will come up like the the having children and um we uh have gone to counseling about how to raise our kids we've carried it over to when we're stuck on something rather than arguing with each other we go and we talk to an expert in child development who says well that's fine but your kids only eight give them a while Oh, okay, thanks. Because when you're a parent, it's usually the first time, and you don't know. I think we've learned, too, that we have kind of different parenting styles, and anytime you're a parent, you you have to deal with a lot of stuff from your own personal history about how you think you ought to parent. And we had very, Suzanne's more of a negotiator. I tend to be more of a black and white, draw the line kind of thing. And I think over time, we have both come to see the strength in each other's parenting style and know that kids, you know, that having two parents with slightly different parenting styles can actually be good for kids. Yes. Because they're going to be negotiating a world like that. Do the know? kids ever try to split you, play one off against oh, yeah. the other? <laughs> Not to. Occasionally when they were little, you know, 
They would ask one, get a no answer, and go to the other parent, sort of the typical thing. So when we found that out, it was like, no matter what the issue is, it might have been a yes, but if you play us off against each other, it will yes. definitely be a no. So they quit doing that pretty quickly. That put a stop to it. Yeah, I did. How about in the moment, if you disagreed in raising, in the, whatever the issue was that you were working on with your kids, how did you, did you just disagree in front of them, or would you wait and have that conversation after they were gone? I think we've been pretty good. I think one of the typical things we would say is, you know, let us think about that. Or let me talk to Sarah and I'll get back to you. We were pretty good about that, but I will say in the last week, there was something that our younger daughter really, really, really wanted to do and been asking us about a school trip. And Sarah and I had talked about it. It was a big deal in her life. And Sarah and I had talked about it and agreed we were going to let her go. And so one day I was with her and she said, so what about that big trip? And I said, well, yeah. And Sarah was like, that was a big deal. I should have been there when we told her. And Sarah's exactly right. I should have said, well, we'll talk about that when we're with Sarah. Because that was a joint decision we had made. It was a really nice gift to her. And that's sort of like giving somebody a holiday gift from two people, but only one of you is there. (laughs) And so, you know, I mean, you learn on the fly every day. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we, well, I think we, but we basically, in terms of rules about what are, what's basic sort of fairness in relationships, I think we have pretty solid agreement as to what our expectations are. That's why Suzanne can say, you know, thinking about it, it would have been nice if you had been there when I told her. And so, you know, that that I think is maybe the key. Is again, we go back to this idea that I think we have a whole lot of shared values. <laughs> and I know that as you were raising these children, you were both very involved in the community and in your profession. So, tell me about that. Was it hard to balance the two? We did something that my mother had a garage apartment, and the person in the garage apartment would be able to babysit sometimes. So we took our four-bedroom house and made the fourth bedroom and a space near it into an apartment. And we rented that apartment to somebody who helped with child care all the way through, even up until now. And, you know, Ting's 17, but somebody still spends a night if we're out of town. And so over the years, that person became a, not just a nanny or a babysitter, but part of the family. They'd be in and out of the kitchen. They became people that we came up with now and are very close to almost everybody who lived there. And the, and, girls, and the girls keep up with them. So in another sense, it kind of introduced another adult into the household since we make our own families. So these are kind of like, you know, aunts or uncles that are people that if they click with our kids, then they have a continuing relationship with them. So you I feel like they'll probably be part of their life. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. At one point, I remember Dawn and Ting were probably, I don't know, 8 and 12, and they knew I wrote wills, and I was explaining them about guardianship, and they said, well, who would take care of us if something happened to both of you? And I said, well, Amy and Veronica, and they went, oh, okay. (laughs) Amy had lived in our apartment for three years and was now with her partner, Veronica, having kids. And so it was just like having an aunt or uncle, but it was chosen family. And so building that into our household literally made for a long-term relationship. And it also meant that we could say, hey, are you home for a little while? The baby's asleep and I need to run to the grocery. Yeah, I'll be here. Don't worry. And then they'd log in 15, 30 minutes of time that was then toward bartering their rent. I see. So that worked out beautifully that we bartered the rent. We all communicated 
And they helped us out. We helped them out. And it was just a give on both sides with, I don't know, maybe 10 people in the last 20 years. So um, tell me about the greatest joys and the most difficult challenges so far in your relationship. Um, I think the most difficult challenge, and it goes to the counseling thing, um, having been an only child, I still had some sibling rivalry stuff to work out that I hadn't worked out as an only, and I was working and flying around, and I think I had, hadn't really, was still, I think, angry about um, maybe having kids when the kids were little. So I went out and had a one night stand in one of my, one of my places, you know, that I was working in. And I felt really, really guilty about it. And I didn't, t- I, tr- I didn't really tell you. I finally told you in front of our friend Carrie. Well, the way she so finally, <laughs> the way she finally told me is we're with our friend Carrie. And I'm like, you know, I know I can trust Sarah. If anything ever happened, I'm sure she'd tell me about it. And Sarah almost choked on her suit. <laughs> and she's like, well, I have something to tell you. Uh-huh. And it was kind of kind of interesting because we're sitting there with a dear friend and an acquaintance. Yeah. And that's how she told me she had an affair a year or one night stand a year earlier. Yeah. And I, you know, I just, I mean, it's, I just felt, I felt really bad about it. Um, I did it in, you know, childish anger. We all do stuff in childish anger um, and things we're going to live to regret. I guess any, most everybody's got at least one thing they can probably look back on. And at the time, um, oh, I was brokenhearted. I, I could not say, oh, she was acting out and it's all fine. I was brokenhearted. There was a trust issue. If this has not been told to me for a year, what else has not been told to me? And we had to do some really hard work. I'm assuming to that's heal one that. of the times that you went back to therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other big challenges we've had to deal with is cancer. And Sarah was diagnosed four years ago with ovarian cancer. It's a rare kind. It's hard to cure. She's doing great right now. But two years ago, we were like, there's nothing left to do. Let's go do a clinical trial. And she did this clinical trial that's been literally miraculous. So that's been amazing. But we've had to face death and not growing old like we thought we would together. And there's real growing up in that. And then last December, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which hers is on the end of the spectrum that is really scary and dangerous. And mine is on the other end of the cancer spectrum that says, oh, it'll probably be okay, but it's still cancer. So that's been a another level of closeness, challenge, commonality, and really looking and saying, you know, we can plan for it. When the kids are gone, we'll do this. But we better really enjoy today because, you know, you plan for the future and hope for the best and plan for the worst because you just never know. But in the day-to-day of dealing with all that, so stressful. So did it bring you together? Was it ever a point of I think contention? it's really brought us together. I yes. Think so one is the gratitude. You know, you realize how precious the time you have on this earth is. And you can therefore try to make a wise choice and I think we're both we were always grateful for each other but even more so and going to treatments with me and being there for each other has been I think it's it, we're mm-hmm. even closer mm-hmm. 
we're in a new stage of our life. You know, it's kind of funny because most people, I'm uh, almost 67 and you're all going to be 63. So most people our age still don't have a kid at home, but we do. So we've got this kind of odd, odd situation. But but I think that there's a piece of us that's in the, oh, we're going to be empty nesters. And then there's another piece of us that is we're in our mid-60s. And, you know, have some health challenges. We're both really healthy except for the cancer. But, you know, it really makes you take stock of what matters. It really means that you don't get picky over the small things. And you know, appreciate the small blessings. You appreciate the small blessings and the big blessings. I feel like I've got a lot of big blessings in my life. And I used to, though, get frustrated because somebody didn't put the knife back in the knife drawer or somebody didn't, you know, turn off the lights or those kind of little things. Eh, let them go. <laughs> let them go sooner. You have a happier life. Yeah. Tell me about having elderly parents. Um, we both had elderly parents. We are elderly parents, and we had elderly parents. My father died before Sarah ever met me. You got to know my mom. Did you know her before her stroke? Yes. But then she had a stroke and lived five more years. So, And then we had your, your brother, who was almost like an elderly parent. And I had a 14-year-older-than-me brother who fell and had a head injury. So he was a, quite an invalid for 15 years. So that was sort of for our kids, like having a grandparent around, because he was the elderly person in the wheelchair that you could take care of. I see. So we've been through her helping me with my family, and then your family. Yeah, my parents died. Um, my mom met our first daughter, but she died of lung cancer in 1990. My dad died in 94. My mom died in 99. So it's been a while. So it was 10 or 15 years into our relationship. Yeah. But I, one of the, we, we didn't really have the sandwich issue of taking care of the kids quite so much and taking care of the parents because we kind of missed that. I mean, my parents were pretty much off the scene, which I'm sorry that my kids don't have grandparents. And that's why I think having these other adopted family members, you know, has really been good for our kids. Mm -hmm. I will say another big challenge is in a relationship, how to negotiate two careers and where will we live or how will we balance that with kids? And so we moved to Washington, D.C. and were settled in there, I thought. And then one day Sarah said to me, I'm moving back to Austin, Texas. And she had a good job possibility, but she also had her elderly parents to take care of. And I said I would never go back to Texas. I'd left Texas in the rearview mirror. And so I said, okay, I'll go with you. But I cried packing boxes, and she kept telling me that Austin is different than Lubbock, where I grew up, and it's very true. But, but you know, sometimes you have to do a real give and take and not keep score, but keep in the back of your mind, hey, you know, I moved here for you, and I did this for you, and I did that for you. Can we talk about these things I want to? So you have to keep all of those things on the table to keep it balanced. You know, how many times have you helped me? How many times have I helped you? Let's both step up for this one. So not keeping score, but a fairly balanced give and take. Right. So it's yeah. not one person is always the give, 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 give. That you, you, you give and take. Exactly. You both mentioned just a few seconds into the podcast shared values. Mm -hmm. What are the other qualities that you think have helped you make it 34 years? 
I mean, I, I would never discount luck. I'm sorry. I think luck's important. When people meet each other, circumstances, what the stressors are. I mean, if, if relationships don't work for people, I guess my advice is don't feel like you, there's something wrong with you. It may have just been that the cards didn't fall. You know, I think we had, you know, when our stressors hit us, we were in usually pretty strong places to deal with them. So I don't, I, I just don't want to discount luck. I also think having good communication, sometimes almost, you know, too much of quote unquote lesbian process. I mean, we will talk about anything at any time, sometimes ad nauseum, but um, we don't, things don't smolder, things don't fester. If, the, if someone's emotionally upset or feel that something isn't fair, then it's going to be brought out and talked about. Mm -hmm. And I will say that going to therapy all these years has really helped us because somewhere along the way, we heard and then were reminded a few times that the words always and never are red light words. And so early on, we would have said, you always leave the dishes in the sink <laughs> and you never take the dog for a walk. And now it'll be like, I statements, I notice the dishes are in the sink again, or I haven't seen you take the dog for a walk lately, and so then it's not such an accusation, and it opens up a conversation. And so just those little tricks along the way, it's like giving a kid a choice. Do you want to put your coat on now or before you go out the door? And those are the kids' choices, and they take a choice, and the coat goes on. So, you know, those kind of communication skills are huge, and you have to learn them. And then I think also just fundamentally, especially as you get older, wanting to do things or, you know, whether it's meditation or yoga or a spiritual practice of some sort, of trying to become a more loving, awake, conscious, considerate human being, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's part of it too. And I don't, I don't expect, I think that's just something that hits you when you're older in life. And I think that's why when you look at satisfaction, you know, 55 year olds and older people are pretty happy people. I think it's because they've changed their perspective a bit about what's important in life. We're almost at the end of our time, but is there anything else that you would recommend to younger couples who are trying to think about having a life together? Something I was thinking about that we used to say is we're on a path together and it's like we're riding bicycles beside each other and sometimes she'll go ahead and I'll drop back or I'll go ahead and she'll drop back. or Sometimes we even take a little curve off the path and then come back, but we're still on that same path together. And as long as we can do that, we've got a good relationship. We both believe in like the long term, hoping to be, you know, sitting in the, you know, the the rocking chairs, chairs together. So if that's what you want, I, I think make sure that the person that you want, that you're making a commitment to, that you're really able to make a commitment and that that person is too. And commitment means when you hit the bumps to really try to work through it because you're both probably going to end up stronger, better people on the other side of the bump, you know, and that's part of what it's kind of the sand in the oyster that makes the pearl and everyone's life you know, no matter how famous or wealthy is going to have challenges. So find someone who you really feel like shares that value of wanting to work through the challenges. Sarah, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your experiences and what you've learned together. Thanks, Jeff. 
Do you know any LGBT couples with interesting stories and wisdom to share on the show? Jeff would love to meet them. So please contact him through the website at qmarriagementors.com. Until next time, thanks for listening and have a great week. 